Hello and welcome to the Mongol Media Show. I am Mongol Media Editor-in-Chief Efe Levant. To learn more about us and follow the articles discussed on the show, please visit our website www.mongolmedia.net. Mongol Media is supported entirely by reader donations. If you like our content and would like to see more of it, please check out our pledge options from our Patreon site. Listeners who like fiction can also buy our illustrated short story, Guide to Every City, written by myself and illustrated by Ala Alhasun. Guide to Every City is a guide for a fictional city inhabited by insects. The three different species of insect in every city, hopsters, sloggers and buzzies, live segregated lives on their isolated neighborhoods. The book not only presents a commentary on social divisions within urban life, it also satirizes contemporary travel writing. The fictional author of the guide, Steve McCracker, is a thoroughly unrelatable hipster who genuinely believes that the rest of the world did not exist until he discovered it for some over-designed travel magazine. You will laugh, you will cringe, in the words of Steve, you will never be the same again. In this episode, I am joined by Joey Ayu to talk about an upcoming article he is writing about the political chance of the Arab Spring. Since the article is currently under development, I am just as excited to hear about it as you are. Or at least, I hope you are. Be warned that this episode may contain some swearing. Hello, I am with Joey Ayub today, and uh, a man who needs little introduction to people who are following Mongol Media and who have listened to this podcast before. And he is working recently on an article for the Mangal Media blog about uh, chance during the Arab Spring and the revolution. Hello, Joey. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me again. Pleasure. So, like, um, how would you... Like, I haven't seen the article yet, obviously, because mm-hmm. you're working on it right now. Uh, maybe you could give us a kind of like a short summary of what you're working on. Right. So uh, part of it is a pretty simple overview of some of the most, um, let's say, known or popular chants and songs used in the Syrian revolution specifically. And that's sort of like the first part, like an overview. I do a bit of analysis of some of the songs, by which I mean, I just go through the lyrics and I point out the stuff that I found interesting in them. And sort of the second part is looking at how some of these songs travel primarily from Syria to Lebanon or Syria to Palestine. And in a, at least in the case of one song that I know, at least one chant that I know uh, from Lebanon to Palestine as well. So that's sort of it in a nutshell. Uh, I suppose like we could kind of talk about the specifics of these chants and uh, what, uh, from what I understand, you are kind of rec- like, recovering the revolutionary creativity of these people that you feel is being lost when concentrating too much on the geopolitical uh, factors of of the movement perhaps like maybe yeah. let's start with talking about that aspect of it yeah yeah definitely i think w- one of the most underappreciated um uh successes i guess if that's the term we want to use of the scene revolution specifically has been this huge outburst of creativity that was obviously you did have creativity in Syria prior to 2011, but I 
either because they were being censored or self-censorship or because they were done in exile, didn't really have the same kind of cultural impact, if you want, as compared to like after 2011. And for me, this is, it's one of the many ways, obviously. Another, you can look at another angle, like, you know, the media being produced, the independent journalism, um, media activism, citizen journalism, what have you, or whatever other terms we want to use that are also are, are still being uh, produced by a number of CN activists, either on, on the ground, quote unquote, or in exile. Um, so the reason, uh, so one of the songs I look at, for example, is a pretty common one. It's in Arabic, it's called Jannah, Jannah, so like homeland, homeland. And it's by, I, most of these songs, I don't know who actually wrote them. So I will just say the person who's most famously associated with it. In this case, is Abdel Basit al-Sarut, uh, probably the most famous uh, Syrian um protest chant leader you know whatever terms we want to use um and he was uh Abdul Basa Sarut, uh who died a couple of years ago he was killed in action um in battle uh he was an ex goalkeeper uh for one of Syria's national teams and a football goalkeeper and the song Jeanne, um was really interesting about it uh, for, so two things. I'll, I'll just first I'll mention what it's about. So in English, it's just heaven, heaven, or oh, our homeland is heaven, or oh, homeland, or oh, beloved, or oh, good soil. Even your fire is heaven. So obviously this this rhymes in Arabic. Jannah, Jannah, wallah ya watanna, ya watan ya habayib ya butrab tayyib hatta nari Jannah. And obviously they would sing it, not just read it. Um, what I find sometimes interesting is that you would have a play on words in other chants or in other songs. So another example would be. Um, a song by Ibrahim Koshush um, that I found a video from Hama in January 2012, leading the crowd to sing the following. So the English first, they lost their mind, they lost their mind, the Baathists lost their mind when we demanded freedom. And in Arabic, it would sound like this. It's, and what I find quite interesting about that is that Jannah and Jannah sound pretty much pretty similar to us, especially to, to maybe not non, non-Arabic speakers. And at the end of the day, it's just one letter that changes. But the difference is Jannah is homeland, whereas Jannah is they lost their mind, essentially. And what's interesting is that in that song, what follows is in English, again, again first, Curse your soul, Abu Hafiz, meaning Bashar Assad, you son of thieves. And so the song would go like this. I'll, I'll repeat it again. And so it rhymes, and And in between, it's sorry, in between Basiye, which is Baathists, and Haramiye, which is thieves, you have the word which is freedom. And I sort of interpret it, if you want, as freedom stubbornly inserting itself between the two, essentially. And you have a lot of these play on words, um, playing with rhymes, playing with different things that often is just a bunch of people or maybe one person who wrote it down. Some of them, you can, so there are some videos where you can see them trying it out. And obviously not all of this was filmed, but you can sort of imagine how the process would be either behind closed doors, like at someone's house, they're sitting down together and they're writing a song that, or a chant that is, uh, you know, that makes sense in, 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 the, in the certain context, in this case, 2011 Syria, uh, or they're singing it during the, the, during a protest. And you often have uh, people that kind of, they take the lead in the protest uh, chanting, and you can even see them improvising. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. And is, there's even a bit of, 
of humor, if not some fun associated, which for again, for people who associate Syria uh, with fun is not really a very common thing, obviously. And it's it's uh, for me, songs and chants have this, uh, even like from an archival perspective, the fact that they're recorded, their videos often that I can uh, just download if I if they're on YouTube, for example, I can download them and just have it with me and rewatch it time and time again, have this sense of reliving something, a moment in the past that is not fully past yet, because that very thing that started in 2011, in the case of Syria, obviously, is, is very much still with us. And you can, as a way for me, and I know many uh, Syrian activists do this, I actually picked up the habit uh, through a few of my friends. Um, it's also a way for them to sort of remember what exactly was there before the, Im the images that we, that many people, even people, probably people listening would then associate with Syria, you know, the bombs, the suffering, the destruction, the ruins and so on. It's a way for people to remember that this is the same place. This is exactly the same place. And what followed, it's not like it's an act of God or it was like it's a rule, you know, it's it's like a, a natural law or what have you that uh, after 2011 or 2012, you had to have the bombs and the suffering and the destruction and the ruins and so on and so forth. It it places it in its in its timeline, if you if you see what I mean. And that that's sort of what and Syrian protesters, I should say, were very aware of this because one thing that's very um, discernible when you watch these videos, and most of them are still up on YouTube or on Facebook or what have you, you would have someone who is either saying to the cat, so he's filming, uh, let's say the person is filming, uh, telling the camera, uh, I am recording this on January the 3rd, 2012. This is one of the videos that I'm, that I'm, that I'm using, for example. And the reason why I know this is that he literally has a piece of paper that says January 3rd, 2012, and that says where it is being filmed, in this case, in, in the city of Hama. And so this, this um, desire essentially to document what's happening kind of leads me to believe, and I think it's, it's an objective conclusion, that people, a lot of people anyway, who are participating were aware that they were aware that this is something momentous that was happening. And they really needed it to be documented, either because they didn't know whether this would last. By January 2012, for example, the crackdowns had already, you know, were very much on, ongoing for like six, seven months now by then. Or because they were afraid that something would happen to them and they wanted something to document, you know, this, this desire to, to be remembered, let's say, in one way or another. Or it was just simply for them. You can easily imagine the person who filmed that video and uploaded it on YouTube. Uh, assuming that person is somewhere in the world today, maybe still has that video on, on his phone or on, on her phone, for example. It has this, this quality of um, fighting or let, let's say resisting the, 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 how do I say this? The tendency to dehumanize, quote unquote, a conflict. And I'm putting this in quotation because for me, Syria is much more complicated than just a conflict. But yeah, I rambled a bit. But that that's essentially some of the, some of the, you know, I just started with one song and then two songs, actually two different chants. And, and I went on this entire analysis and that's just coming from those two songs. I think it's kind of, um, it's kind of interesting because for me, having read and actually having had the pleasure of editing your article about solar punk, I see kind of like a parallel in the, um, yeah. in the sensitivities that you have developed in, in your thinking about both of them, because 
the entire idea of solar punk from your explanation uh, was the idea that yes there is this kind of uh, potential cataclysmic kind of event that is approaching towards us at great speed but it does not empower us to just simply focus on its destructive attributes uh, because it it has the potential to like paralyze us into taking action and make us kind of abandon all hope and it it kind of uh, strips us of our agency to actually do something about it and here now I kind of understand a lot more like where your attraction to solar punk has originated from because you are also concerned very much with um, with the erasure of Syrian revolutionaries, but actually like Arab revolutionaries throughout the Arab Spring in the entire region, you are concerned about their agency being erased in the favor of a cataclysmic event that's approaching towards them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's actually a pretty good link because the Syrian crisis against quote unquote, um, a lot of it's not uncommon in certain circles of academia and even in the media to sort of blame 2011 on climate change because there was a very bad drought that preceded 2011 yeah, and so on and so this. forth. But uh, I've interviewed Marwa Dawoodi who on, on, on my podcast, The Fire These Times, who wrote an entire book on the matter. And that drought wasn't the first drought uh, that passed through Syria. Obviously, it hasn't been the last one. And given the patterns of climate change, will definitely not be the last one, maybe not even be the worst one to come. Um, what changed over the years is policy. What changed over the years is literal politics and, and, and economics, essentially. And she was going through an entire thing where about from uh, nationalization to privatization to neoliberal capitalism in Syria and so on and so forth, especially with the transition from Hafez al-Assad, who himself was liberalizing, quote unquote, the economy in the 90s. But then to Bashar al-Assad in the year 2000, when he took over from his dad, that, that you progressively saw more and more what you would identify as neoliberal, quote-unquote, reforms. And so the, the link is a bit there, yes, but also on, on another level, 2011 and 2012 are often seen as very different than 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20, and 21 now. It's been 10 years at the end of the day. And obviously, in many ways, they, they were. Those two years, especially 2011, uh, for one, you had less bombs than after 2011, 2012, although they were, still, they were already happening in 2011. You didn't have Russia yet. You didn't have Hezbollah and Iran yet. You, you had different, it was a different, different actors, quote unquote, and I'm using all of those terms from, from you know, political sciences I'm not always comfortable with, but for now, we'll just make do. Uh, it was a different Syria, essentially. But in many other ways, it's still the same Syria. And we would see these this Syria, which I'm here describing as like the pre-armed revolutionary uprising, let's put it that way, would still sort of pop up in times of quote-unquote peace. There would, when, whenever you would have a ceasefire for like any any decent amount of time, let's say for a week or two weeks or what have you, a lot of the time, especially in eastern Aleppo and uh, at the time, but in Dara and Daraya and in Idlib as well, you see them from time to time to this day, you would have uh, people coming down, coming out to the streets and chanting. And often it's the same chants. It's 
Shabiri, the Scott and Nizam, so the people who want the downfall of the regime. Uh, sometimes you would hear the one I mentioned before, Jenna Jenna. I have heard it, I think, a couple of years ago, for example. Um, this comes from somewhere, right? Like the people who are chanting this in 2020, let's say, are evoking the chants of 2011 and 2012. And so this creates a, a, a sense, at least uh, from their perspective, from their experiences, and I had conversations to that effect. But it's also the impression that I have when I watch these videos myself. It, it creates a sense that there is something that was created in 2011 and 2012, let's say, and I'm simplifying a bit, that is still there with us. And it's taken a different form. It's been suppressed. It's been exiled. It's been tortured and killed with the bodies that were chanting those chants. The people who were participating in those protests, you can watch a video from 2011 and wonder how many of those people are still with us, how many of those people are in exile, how many of those people are maybe in Syria, but kind of you know took a step back because of censorship or, or they were in prison, they, maybe they were... Uh, harassed, uh, tortured, what have you, you can easily imagine these things happening because we know that they've been happening. What we lack essentially is if we kind of want to take it to a different um, level in the conversation, if you want, is there is a lack of data. So we don't know, for example, the name, faces, where they come from of everyone who participated in that one protest that I'm mentioning, just as an example, in Hama on January 3rd, 2012, right? If we did, we might know that the person who was chanting is now in Turkey. We might know that the person who filmed, the one who, who showed the photo, the, sorry, the, the, the card, the, the, the piece of paper that just said January 3rd, 2012 in Hama, etc., or who spoke to the camera and says, we are protesting in, in Aleppo on this date, etc., you might know that this person was, has since been murdered by the Assad regime or been kidnapped by one of the uh, jihadi factions or by ISIS or uh, is now somewhere in northeastern Syria. You know, you would have these different stories that would then be told. And we have these stories from the people who are a bit more well known. So, for example, we do know a lot about uh, Sarut's life, right? There was an entire documentary. I forgot the name of the documentary. Uh, about about that. Um, and, you know, you can think of the pianist of Yarmouk. We, we followed his story. And people can look up those, those, I think it's the documentary, I think it's on Netflix, might be on Netflix, but I, I might be, anyway, it's online. And so you can follow this and you can follow that person individual story. But part of what I'm trying to do is to argue that it's not necessarily in the realm of fiction. I mean, it is, but it's more of a fiction that's based, that's grounded in reality. If you were to sort of imagine someone else whose name you don't know. Uh, you watch a video and there is this video of one of them where you would have uh, sort of like a bunch of uh, men and women on one side. And then for one reason or another, usually conservative Moors and so stuff like that, you would have the women on one side of on another side of the of the of the of the square, let's say. And you wonder, let's say there's 12 of them. Where are they now? You know, you could write a story. You can kind of think of the solar punk aspect here. You can write a story. You're imagining the story. You can maybe do some research to make it as accurate as possible. But the details of that story may not be as of that fiction story may not be as important, in my view. They're important to the story, but they're not that they don't make the story any less true, if you see what I mean, because it could be true. We're not talking about a fantasy genre or anything like this. We're really saying that this is what happened on this date. 
this is what I imagine may have happened to X person. And the reason why I'm saying this is because I know that X, that this did happen to another person who was in that square or was in that city anyway, or was in another protest maybe. And some of these stories, you know, are similar to one another or similar enough. You have uh, parallels, you have, you know, you think of quote unquote, the refugee crisis that we're talking, that we're dealing, that we're witnessing today on the Belarus-Poland border, you know, as a repeat from earlier uh, in 2020, when there was the same, more or less the same thing on the Greek and Turkish border, you know, you can go back and forth and look at these things. And I'm just trying to push against the, the tendency which I find a common tendency among the commentariat of, of uh, Twitter people and media people and often even political people, and sometimes they kind of live in the same world, that um, separate these two, uh, sorry, separate all of these things, when in my view, the separation isn't always justified, if you see what I mean. I think there are more things in common between what's happening on the Belarus-Poland border right now um, and what happened earlier in 2020 at the Greek-Turkish border. There are more things in common, even though it's literally four different countries, than there are differences. You have the EU uh, policies versus countries that are at its border and what, how, how that translates into an essentially an anti-migrant and anti-refugee policy, for example. It changes from the one in Greece to the one in Poland, but the essence is essentially the same. And what does that say? You know, who are who are being who are the bodies and the humans being dehumanized in that situation? And it's more or less the same people. The same people, not as in they're often not even from the same country. You have Syrians, Iraqis, Afghans, you know, and so on and so forth, but they are treated as the same people. They are just treated as a nameless, faceless you know, horde of browns and blacks essentially coming to white Europe. That's essentially what it is. And for me, putting the put, putting um, telling that kind of story is more accurate because the, the message is more accurate. And this is a whole James Baldwin thing that I took from than just focusing on quote unquote the facts. You can just focus on the facts. Let's say, again, the example of Poland, Belarus. Uh, and but you choose to only quote the Polish foreign minister and the uh, leader of the EU, uh, Ursula von der Leyen. Uh, I forgot her official title. And you you can quote Lukashenko, and you're also you are you know focusing on the facts, but you're choosing not to focus on other things that are also facts. Where they where these people come from, you know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think all of, I, yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with the frameworking of the fact within the kind of news cycle, also because yes, like these yes. stories kind of emerge as European crisis stories. Like the reason exactly. why this has happened is because like Europe has imposed a um, an embargo on Belarus, and now Belarus is opening the border. And we're all used to Syrian suffering anyway. And like, I suppose mm. there's some Afghans. I don't know which one there's more of, you know, that kind of- There are a lot of or... Iraqis, Iraqis at the, at the Belarus Poland. Of course, well. of course. Like I was just kind of impersonating the kind of uh, the news oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. vibe, like of being like, I don't know, like there's like a bunch of, I guess they're Muslims and they're like trying to cross the border because it's a hellhole there. And but, but the reason why it's a hellhole is entirely based on like, is America there or is it not? I'm talking Afghanistan now because like the whole American presence was the key central element of like the way that Afghanistan was covered as well. Like everything else was just basically Afghans falling off the planes, 
they were kind of like a backdrop to like a misery that we are entirely powerless we as in Europeans are entirely mm. powerless in stopping anyway and these people don't seem to be doing much to sort it out better themselves like let's focus on our border problems what to do with Belarus and whether Russia is going to get involved or not and everything else is kind of a sob story I mean they've had stories of like migrants freezing to death and things like that but it was again like entirely within the framework of uh of covering a european crisis essentially yeah exactly and it, it it does also link to again the chance that i was mentioning in syria because one thing that tends to be i'm not going to even say overlooked tends to be actively ignored is that when we speak of let, let's go back to the example of the chance when we speak of those of of that as one of the many ways that Syrians at the time, both Arabs and and Kurds and other ethnicities and other religious groups, were rebelling and 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 leading essentially an uprising and a revolution against the Assad regime. It is very uncommon, even to this day, to see any of these things being mentioned. And the reason for that is that as far as people in media and politics, and I'm being as abstract as uh, as vague as uh, as as possible because it's not even about necessarily individuals who do this it's a wider trend as as very easy example i comment as we were talking like about an hour ago so i commented on twitter like there was a mass there was there was a number that came out of how many children were murdered in idlib for example in the past few months and idlib is is still being bombarded it's still being besieged it's still going through all of the stuff that Eastern Aleppo went through in 2016, for example. But most people wouldn't really know this from the coverage uh, that we might get on Idlib from time to time. And that's, that is because there's been essentially an acceptance. And one way, in, in uh, part of it was uh, due to COVID in 2020, taking away the headline, but it was starting before that as well, of essentially concluding that the war is over. And who, who, in whose best interest is it to have that conclusion other than the Assad regime and the powers at be Erdogan, Putin, uh, Iran, you know, what have you? And, and my answer of it's a rhetorical question because obviously it's for them. It is in their best interest to interpret things in that way. And for me, I'm sort of just questioning what would it mean? What does it mean to say, well, this is just how things are now? These are just the facts of the matter. The facts of the matter is that the Assad regime has won. What does that mean? Won what? Where? For how long? Who, who has lost? Who? Because that's another thing. You say well, has won. Well, who is losing? Who, is the, who are the people being lost in this story? If you see what I mean. They're losing and they're being lost at the same time. And that's something that for me is ties into what I try to do. When I look at these videos, I don't just think of, oh, this is what happened in 2011. I think of, for example, of Ali Mustafa, Wafa Mustafa's father. Wafa is, is a friend of mine, had her on the podcast as well. Her father is one of the many who were forcibly disappeared by the Assad regime. It's, it's ongoing. He is still forcibly disappeared. It's, he is still her father. She is still thinking about him on a daily basis, and she's posting about it on a daily basis. But as far as the sense that you get, if you just read most news stories on Syria, for example, or even a lot of the political rhetoric when it comes to Syria, well, uh, he doesn't exist anymore. The, his, her father doesn't exist anymore. He's just one of the casualties. He's collateral damage, and that's it. And that's it, you know. And as a Lebanese, I know this very well because that's still to this day, 31 years after the the end, the quote unquote end of the civil war, 
you still have people who are officially uh, disappeared in Lebanon and in Syria, for that matter, from Lebanon. And they're not considered part of the story anymore. The, you know, you read a story on Lebanon, it is extremely rare to mention the disappeared because they're not part of the headlines. They're not part of something that is quote unquote happening. And I'm just trying to challenge that. It's not going to make much of a difference with one article, but it's something, it's an ongoing uh, tendency that I'm trying to have in everything that I do to just try and reassert the importance of something that is being violently, and for me, this is violence, violently suppressed. And I don't just mean physical violence, as it would be most obvious with the Assad regime. I mean, like, rhetorical violence. I mean, like, epistemological violence. I mean, like, ways of ignoring entire groups of people and their experiences because their experiences are inconvenient. Because that's what Syrians' experiences are, even to the, even as early as 2011, and especially as of 2012, when the counter-revolutions were starting to kick in. Syrian experiences were extremely inconvenient from uh, where they landed, like in, in, sorry, in Lebanon, in Jordan, in Turkey. They were always an inconvenience. At best, maybe we're nice. Maybe we will, you know, extend the hand of charity. And, you know, this is always temporary. And at worst, they are, you know, in Turkey, we see this all the time. They are invaders. You know, they are a threat to the national homeland. We see this obviously within the EU as well. You know, and all of these things those are the same people. Those are the same people as from 2011, 2012. Now, obviously, you have younger generations and you have people who didn't participate in the early phases but participated later. You have people who never participated but started becoming active in exile. All of these are stories that are telling different stories and at the same time telling the same story. And I see this a lot when I... And this is just from watching a single three minutes chant, uh, sorry, video on YouTube of a protest, for example, or five minutes or 10 minutes or what have you. Those are all of the stories that you can bring to the table, which for me, yes, there is a solar punk element to it. There's a speculative fiction, you might say, uh, element to it. But there's also a very concrete political aspect to it. Those are the people who participate in 2011 are walking among us. There are refugees in Europe or Turkey or Lebanon or Jordan or they're internally displaced in Syria. You know, they're there. They're still there. Or if they were killed, well, they were killed. And that's also a story. If they're forcibly disappeared, they're forcibly disappeared. That's also the story. There is a tendency of because it doesn't fit in a lot of different things, the new cycle being faster, the usual racism, orientalism, Islamophobia, what have you, the usual stuff that has just been, I think, I don't know, uh, the, the pace has just changed within the era of social media. But on the underlying, I think, tendencies are more or less still the same from like the times of uh, Bosnia in the 90s to today, for example, mm. even before then. Those are the stuff that are being violently repressed, in my view. And I'm, I'm using that term semi-provocatively because obviously violence repression means something specific. But I think it's an element of that in the same way that in as a uh, genocide isn't just the genocide, but it includes genocide denialism that follows the genocide it's part of the same structures of violence and i look at all of those chants and i see our songs and chants and so on and i see a, a world that was murdered and for me that is those are the this is the framework that i choose to have and by having this framework a lot of the things that follow 
change as well. If you if you agree that 2011, 2012, those things that we saw, especially those two years, were murdered, repressed, brutalized, tortured, forcibly disappeared, exiled, and so on, then you look back at them in a different light than if you're just looking at, oh, well, this is just a protest chant and people were just pissed off that day. I you think know, it, it, it gives it a different different layer. Absolutely. I think when it comes to kind of um, when it comes to being able to understand like the full gravity of something like the Syrian revolution, uh, there is this kind of like tool that a lot of kind of mainstream media uses kind of like, I don't know, like they usually talk about humanizing the news and what they would do. OK, they would do like a story about like uh, here's Fatma or Aisha or like uh, Hassan or whatever. And this is what they've been through. And this is their kids. Look at how terrible their life is. Like we have humanized this story. Like everybody can go home. But I think uh, humanizing the story from what you were saying also comes from like really to, to be able to do justice to humanizing a story. The tool you need to kind of develop is the ability to be able to plug it into somebody else's experience elsewhere like i have grown up like in my teens like in back in the north kind of i don't know listening to like songs from like the spanish civil war things that like i have no possibility of ever having witnessed or i've heard like talking to someone who has ever witnessed the spanish civil war and but there was this kind of like left infrastructure of making sense of idioms and songs and imagery and like an ideology of like progress towards something which kind of allowed me to be able to plug those slogans and songs and historical I don't know facts like everything like it allowed me to humanize the entire gravity of the situation by looking at it from the same perspective and I think what is happening right now is for a lot of the Arab Spring like this particular um, infrastructure, I would call like an ideological infrastructure, like people have tried to utilize this, but it has completely collapsed. It was completely unable to carry the weight of this new kind of, I can't find the word for it, like real humanization or whatever you want to call it. Like, and, and they yeah, like a way yeah. of connecting it to your experience. The, the left as an entirety, has completely failed to be able to do that. And maybe what we are experiencing right now is a vacuum for creating a new kind of inf infrastructure that's going to make these experiences much more relevant uh, than the experiences of something like the 1848 or the 1917 revolution, which are kind of like, it's almost like comical to be mm -hmm. kind of referencing to these historical events, to, be, uh, to try to understand what is happening right now. Whereas like what's happening right now should be our new defining historical goalposts, you know, like I find it kind of incredible that there's a lot of people in Turkey who don't quite understand that these people are actual revolutionaries, like within the left circle, like they would talk about revolution, this revolution, that, but they don't actually understand that the person that they're looking down upon is a real life in flesh revolutionary sitting in front of them and they're completely oblivious to that fact. And it sort of tells you, you know, to go back to a story, it tells you many things, I think. It tells you, well, if this is how we're treating Syrian refugees, let's say today, why are we shocked by how Jewish refugees were treated in the 30s and 40s? 
And I don't mean this just to be kind of provocative or, or whatever. I really mean it in the sense that I don't think it, um, it is shocking anyway. That's maybe that's not the word to use. But I read a I read like Primo Levi, let's say, and and I I see something that he was expressing what he was going through, and I sort of wonder if one of the ways he was remembered or he was read after um, his unfortunate uh, suicide was like, okay, well this thing happened in the past, and now we have to learn about it, but that's that's where we stop. You know, like there isn't a direct link between me and Primo Levi. And I think this is something that's wrong. And I think this is something that I only started really understanding through my appreciation of James Baldwin's work specifically, but others, Primo Levi is another example for that matter, or I don't know, other, Audrey Lord would be another person that I would cite often and stuff. And I find it very interesting to give you a very concrete example. When it comes to this whole, we need to humanize a story, because I can understand the underlying, um, let's say, intention, maybe, sure. But I wonder, for example, let's say there are stories about Lebanon today. And I've been in some of those stories. I was one of the organizers in 2015, the uprising then. And I took part of the one in, in 2012, mostly as, as an observer and people, person documenting, whatever. And so I've been interviewed. I've been quoted in, in some of those stories. And I remember during 2015 uprising, there was, I forgot which channel, it was one of the Arabic channels. And they came to one of our uh, meetings. Uh, it was one of the open meetings, not one of the closed ones. And the, the story was a lot about how we were a gang of friends uh, chilling together and how I, th there was a description of how I was having coffee and what have you. And it didn't really matter much to what the supposed topic uh, that that person was covering was actually about. You know the uprising against the waste crisis at the I time. know exactly the kind of vibe of article that you're talking about. Yes, yes. And another very good example of what's happening now, I'm trying to write it, it might be out by the time this is up, but I'm not sure. It will, it will be in my newsletter on the Fire These Times. But uh, one thing that I, I, I live in Switzerland, and one thing that I find incredible um, as someone who's trying to read Swiss media from time to time, for example, is that the fact that right now, and this is a one of those shocking statistics, but Switzerland is Lebanon's primary exporter right now, uh, importer, as in Lebanon is exporting to Switzerland. And most of that is essentially finances and gold. And that's from 2020 and including 2021, I believe. I have I have the link, which will be in the newsletter. It was on, on Lorient today, I believe. And I find that interesting because I've read a lot of Swiss articles. And again, I've been interviewed in some of them about Lebanon, right? And it's often like, well, people are protesting, they're fighting the regime, uh, mostly sympathetic most of the time. Occasionally you will have some kind of caricature or not, you know, sectarianism, Shia, Sunni Christians, what have you. You know, all of those things, I think at this point I got quite used to. But it will be extremely uncommon, uh, if not basically unheard of, with the exception of maybe in some small left publication from time to time to mention what what is Switzerland's role in all of this? Because there is this sense of it's happening over there. And this is something that's happening over there. We have nothing to do with it. And to go back to Solopong before, I definitely see a lot of this in a lot of rhetoric when it comes to climate change. I can think of a German woman who was quoted by Deutsche Welle uh, when the, the horrible floods happened in Germany and Belgium last July, the July of this year. And she said, you don't expect something like this to happen in a rich country. 
you expect it to happen in a poor country. I may have mentioned it last time as well. And for me, this tells so much like that. That is that's for me, like any story about climate change and Germany that doesn't include this woman's coat is missing something. If you see what I mean, because what she is saying, other people have said this in one way or another. And if they haven't said this, they have shown this. It's in the policies. It's in what what do we do? Like Germany's main uh, topic of discussion recently has been like how fast cars should be on the autobahn. You know, it's not about we are in a climate emergency right now. We need to be doing something about it. Yes. And for me, all of this ties into like I can jump. I know I'm jumping a bit, but all of this ties into what gets valued and what doesn't get valued. And what do we do when something gets valued? And what do we lose when something gets valued over something else? I think I usually find it like more productive to not dwell too much on what like European press like talks about. Because I mean, as far as I'm concerned, like I mean. We can complain about like how they don't give enough attention to the, the thing that we care about. And then suddenly they do a flip turn and they or like they don't write about, for example, their role in a conflict that we are experiencing. But then you'll have another European or Western press who's like only wants to talk about their role in the conflict that, that, exactly. that we're experiencing. Exactly. And which is kind of like even worse. So like once we get into the cycle of like how the Western press covers things and how they should be doing that. I mean, I'm just happy to leave it to them to figure it out. I don't even want it to be kind of like polluting yeah. my mm -hmm. mind. What interests yeah. me though, kind of when we were thinking about kind of like starting a new kind of like cultural or like emotional infrastructure or like an ideological infrastructure that's going to facilitate uh, the comprehension of things like conflict and struggle and revolution, uh, you were talking, like, we started talking earlier about how these slogans that originated from Syria were now being used in Lebanon. What I find interesting, I think these are exactly the kinds of tools, because once you start to use that slogan elsewhere, then you actually start to have a much more... Um, concrete relationship with the revolution yeah. that, that that slogan is referring to and i think the tools that we will need to create the kind of infrastructure that we are imagining within the peripheral environment that we're living in without involving the kind of like western perspectives i think the kind of thing that we need to start imagining is like how can we exchange these creative tools among us and by utilizing them in like a diverse range of struggles we can kind of reorient our perspectives to the struggles that they're originally referring to. Yeah, uh, one of the one of the best moments I remember from the 2019 uprising was when I started uh, hearing, and it took me completely by surprise. I have to say, I was someone who, if you had asked me prior to October 2019. I would tell you that most people in Lebanon don't give a shit about Syria. They don't think about Syria. It's one of the big problems in Lebanon. There's a lot of xenophobia, a lot of nationalism, a lot of isolationism and so on. And that's true. That's definitely still the case. But I found it very, I was very pleasantly surprised to hear stuff like uh, one of the chants was, you know, Yalla Ikhal Ya Bashar. Uh, come on, hurry up, leave Bashar al-Assad would be the, the translation. <laughs> it doesn't sound as good in English. And um, the way that chant works is you would have the person repeating, uh, saying a number of things, and then the chorus is Yalla al Bashar, and then the people would repeat Yalla al Bashar. That's one of Even my favorite slogans as well, actually. I really love the yeah, uh, yeah. sonority of that. 
I love the sonority. I love that it's yalla, which is a very, you know, some we use this every single day. And it's Bashar, like it's his first name, you know, to just to be as rude as possible. And in Lebanon, they essentially took it a number of people. There were different versions of it. There wasn't one version of it. And they would repeat uh, the different names. So Yalla Hal Misharaon, Yalla Hal Nasrallah, Yalla Hal Berri, Hariri, Jaja, what have you. All of, the, all of these um, warlords and oligarchs that are basically ruling the country. And I found that I can almost feel and maybe it's just me, but I've spoken to some people who also felt so something similar, a sense of euphoria or, or a sense of like a, a weight being lifted off my chest. When I heard that Nasrallah specifically was being named among all of the others. And because it's, it's a very Lebanon specific thing, but essentially even during the 2015 uprising, many people were very hesitant to mention him either because they were afraid of Hezbollah or because they still bought into the narrative that Hezbollah is devoid of corruption, you know, and so on and so forth. And by 2019, with everything that kind of followed and everything that happened in those four years, that was sort of kind of dying out and that was sort of fading away. It's still with many people, but it's definite. Many more people are very, at least open about criticizing him specifically or the party as a whole than they were two years ago. And just like in 2019 is when that more or less started shifting in, in kind of like public uh, rhetoric. And you saw an early sign of this. Now you, now you can kind of go on Instagram and there's like a comedian, Shaden, for example, she's well known, who, who criticizes Hezbollah. But you can sort of go back to the early days of October 2019 and November 2019, more or less that, that first month, October 17 is when it started, and see those... Um, chance almost being negotiated on the streets. I, I was there when someone mentioned Nasrallah and you sort of felt that the crowd, like the people around were not as vocal, again, scared or other reasons. And that sort of faded out eventually, eventually, and it became more and more of a vocal thing to the point that at some point within like a week, really, like it started, it was a Wednesday or a Thursday, I think, or 17. And within like by early next week, essentially by Monday or Tuesday, Nasrallah's name was being mentioned as frequently as anyone else. And for me, the, the early sign, the early uh, adoption of Yalla Ihal Yabashar was an indication, even if it happened relatively quickly in the time span of a week, of what was to come. And the same as well as another chant called, it's, it doesn't make any sense in English, but it's Hela 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 Ho, which doesn't mean anything. But then you would say Jabran Basil Kesemmo. Uh, Jabran Basil being at the time the foreign minister, Kesemmo is uh, unfortunately a sexist way of saying fuck you. And uh, many feminists have actually reappropriated it and used a different term, by the way. Uh, they would say stuff like, Sorry, I'm, I'm being very vulgar. But um, basically say like, fuck Jabran and his uncle, his uncle in this case being his father-in-law, who is the president, essentially. Um, and this this was a sign, this was, you can really see, there is one video, I remember it very well. I have it on that Twitter thread that I did during the uprising at the time, where you could really see a lot of people just laughing their ass out when that when people were saying hela hela ho and then that song. Because it spread, you know, very quickly throughout the country. And that was one way of saying, we don't respect you at all. We will insult you directly. 
And then this was being repeated, mentioning other uh, politicians. And I found it very interesting that during the recent uh, crackdown and violence in Israel-Palestine by the Israeli state, you had Palestinian protesters in Haifa chanting Hela Hela Ho, but instead of uh, Gibran Basile, obviously, they mentioned Mahmoud Abbas, the leader of the PA, essentially seen as a collaborator with the Israeli occupation, which, which he definitely is. And for me, that, that's a fascinating thing that is not often, to, to this day, I should mention another example, the pinned tweet on my on my Twitter account is the Janna Janna song that I, I started with in our conversation being chanted in, um, I forgot where it was, in Homs, I believe, in Syria. And that uh, video is a quote tweet of that same song being chanted in, I believe, Ramallah in like this summer, this past summer, a few months ago. And they're speaking, they're chanting about our homeland, my homeland. They're thinking of a different homeland technically than the one that people in Syria were chanting, but the spirit is essentially the same. It's about the love of the land and so on. And this can obviously there's always a there could be a negative side to this when if it goes to nationalism and so on. In this case, it hasn't. But it's one of the ways of resisting that for me is as valuable to study as uh, looking at books that came out, which is also valuable, or looking at art that came out, which is also valuable or just ana analyzing the geopolitics of things, which is valuable. There is value in doing that. But for me, it's just one of the many ways of valuing the same situation. And I tend to be quite frustrated that all of these other things tend to be subsumed, if you want, because they're not as geopolitically, quote unquote, relevant. And this is sort of the, the essence, if you want, of, of the piece. I mean I might be exaggerating the romanticization of these like slogan or exaggerating, but like the idea that came to my mind while you were talking about like how these kind of like slogans were spreading across the region is it almost sounds as if they have united this part of the world in a way that the Ba'ath Party has tried to do it for 50 years and has completely failed. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. It's it's um, it would be interesting to see how this could be translated politically, obviously, in in different ways. But it's it is very interesting uh, that you would have these again, mostly their chants adapted seamlessly because most of the time you, it's the same language. So most of the time you just change a word or you change a name or what have you, or you adopt it to the local thing. So for example, in Syria, you would have a lot of people mentioning Taifi sectarianism. But most of the time, they would focus on Nizam, the regime. In Lebanon, you would hear a lot of Nizam, the regime, but often you would hear a lot of people mentioning sectarianism. And even the chant, the Shabi, Rita Scott, and Nizam, uh, the people who want the downfall of the regime, you have people in Lebanon who were singing uh, Shabi, Rita Scott, the Taifiyya, the people who want the downfall of sectarianism, because the regime is one aspect of it. Or you might say sectarianism is one aspect of the regime. It's kind of, you know, they're kind of both the same thing at the end of the day. But the regime could be those specific parties that are in government at the moment, but you still have some parties that are not in government at the moment that are actually part of the same regime, if you see what I mean. And that's why they would use RFE instead, because it's the, it's the broader system. And all of these is from chance. All of this is from chance. And for me, it's like, it's there is a, a, a um, I can even go a bit further and say like, there's even, there's even an element of mental health for me. Like I have to go through these things as a way of reminding myself whenever I remember, which is on a daily basis almost, that things are really bad right now in Syria specifically, for example, or in Lebanon for that matter. I go through these chants, not to just to escape. For me, escape has a, 
uh, I forgot who it was. I think it was Ursula Le Guin who was mentioning about um, it might either it's either her or Octavia Butler. I don't remember, but who was talking about escapism as this term that has a negative connotation. Whereas in fact, whereas we should often ask, we would usually we should ask ourselves, let's say, what are we escaping from, and why are we escaping from it? Because there, if if reality was so good, escapism wouldn't be as frequent. Let's put it that way. And for me, this is one of the ways. It's like I'm coping with reality. I'm not in denial of reality. I know how difficult things are. But I also know that if I don't go through these um, uh, remembrances, let's say, I go through these videos specifically in this case, I don't know what else I can do, if you see what I mean. Because I just look at the news. Things are shit. Things are bad. Things are going to be shit and bad for a long time. I need to also remind myself that the people being under the bombs, the people being oppressed, the people being all of those things are also the same people, in this case, Syrians, who are also in those specific videos. It's that same. And sometimes it's that same literal square when it comes to Homs, where those chants were happening. The first one I mentioned, the Janna Janna one, that's the same square that would later be bombarded. And you can see those videos and those images and whatnot, right? And obviously, if you were there, it would be even worse. But it's one of those, it's one of those things where I look, and sorry if I'm repeating myself a bit, but I look at how those chants are produced. I try and posit a theory, if you want a hypothesis, of why at that specific moment was it that chant or this other chant. I may get some of them wrong, the, the, my answers, but it, it, it feels a, as one way, among others, it's not the only way, of actually dealing with the Syrian revolution, or at least bearing mm-hmm. witness to the Syrian revolution, to use that James Baldwin term, and that that's sort of my 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 motivation anyway. I think I have kind of like um, kind of my own experience to share because, like you were talking, you you kind of have this. Uh, I've sensed that you have this kind of trepidation about like whether by recalling these chants and like watching their videos on YouTube, whether you're falling into some kind of like an escapism or whether that's empowering or not. Maybe like my own, like that is kind of, to me, the fact that you're looking up those videos from like a bygone revolution and you're kind of reminiscing them in a positive way. Like it's all like, it's kind of enviable to me because when I, uh, to the extent that my own experience is comparable to yours, like the most comparable experience that I could have is probably like the Gezi protests here. And for me, going back and looking at people kind of like chanting slogans and stuff, it's not the kind of like I don't it, it makes me kind of cringe because a lot of the times like we were there like protesting and there was a lot of like there was a big kind of Kemalist movement, which was kind of the youth wing of that movement was kind of a lot more active at the time than they are now. And like we would be marching together with them and we would be chanting slogans like shoulder to shoulder against fascism. And like, I'm just not convinced that we are. Or, but for instance, one of the things that did kind of gave me hope was we had a slogan way back, I think about like 20 years ago when the Turkish parliament was voting whether to join the second Gulf War with the Americans or not. We had like a pacifist slogan that said, uh, we're not going to kill, we're not going to get killed, we're not going to be anybody's soldiers. That slogan came back during the Gezi protests when 
a lot of the Kemalists had their had this slogan saying like we are the soldiers of Mustafa Kemal, we are the soldiers of Ataturk, and this kind of like people who were kind of like in their mid twenties who did remember uh, the old slogan would respond back like we're not going to kill, we're not going to get killed, we're not going to be anybody's soldiers, and it kind of got adapted into this new moment, not as just like a slogan in itself, but as a response to kind of like militaristic slogan that was being chanted by the people that we were on the same side with. That I thought was empowering. But overall, like for me, the fact that you feel like actually going through these videos is kind of sign that you have the kind of will to struggle that I think I, I feel like I have abandoned after my experiences in the Gezi protests. So maybe there is something to be celebrated about the fact that you're going back to these videos. You know, like I, I part of why I also do this is, so I, I wrote this article in, in December of 2019 with a Syrian friend, Forge Moria. And it was the title, I, I looked it up while, while you were talking, it's called Syrian Melancholy in Lebanon's Revolution. And that's, that, that was before, like I mentioned how those chants are, came from Syria and entered Lebanon, right? But often in those Lebanese settings, the Syrians would be absent. And often it's literally like the actual people who participate in some protests, maybe like very close to you physically, like literally there might be like an hour away by car, they could easily have been invited to take part in the uprising as well. And so I'm not, I also go through this to, to um, remember if you want, even the hesitations that I had back then, because I at no point was I, I mentioned euphoria and all of this, but I mean, the very nature of euphoria is that it doesn't last long, right? And for me, it was one of the ways of reminding myself, and I still do this from time to time. I don't do it as frequently, but I do do it from time to time, that even back then, there were a lot of things missing. And this is a critique, if you want, that was uh, put in motion, if that's the correct expression, by those feminists that I often uh, quote and, and, and talk about in some of those articles that I've written since of using, for example, that Hilaho song and, and changing the Kasemmo to uh, insulting his, fa his father-in-law. There's another one I remember that's really good and I'm, I'm sort of spacing out on the specifics, but it was something along the lines of, it's a traditional song that used to be sung for like when the daughter of the family is married off or something like this. And they changed it from, uh, instead of she is going to get married or she is going to the family or something like this, they change it to she is going to protest. And this is one of those ways for me that I've been involved in, the, in to stay, stick to the Lebanon example, I've been involved in many of these things for about a decade now. And I remember very well what it meant at the time uh, to be a feminist in Lebanon, for example. Many people were but it was very difficult to sort of get a, a kind of political capital out of it, if that's the correct term. And in 2015, we saw a bit more of it, the first uprising, the first big uprising after 2011 in Lebanon. We saw a bit of it, but not enough. The organizers were mostly men. There were organizers in the first place, which, you know, a critique that I think in 2011, we kind of got rid of. Uh, at least it wasn't as, the, as centralized, let's put it that way. But by 2010, not only did you have uh, those chants being more and more common, 
but I participated in a feminist march where they were denouncing the patriarchy and homophobia and transphobia. Now, granted, that's a small percentage of the population, but that's a percentage of the population that just a few years before that would have to meet in a, and I went to one of the Pride, uh, Beirut Pride conferences, for example, there was security outside of the hotel, you know, or the conference room, which was in a hotel or whatever. The, and you had to not be too public about it. You had, you could talk about it maybe in certain media, but not in others. You, you had to take some precautions. And also, I'm not saying things are great right now or what have you. It's definitely not the case. But you had a, you could get that sense. And those chants were one of the examples, uh, one of the manifestations of that uh, new reality, if you want, that since or between 2011, when I started being 10, 11, when I started being engaged on these things and 2019, eight, nine years had passed. And a lot of people who were also for a certain age in 2010, 2011, uh, were now chanting on the streets. You had a lot of people who were 17 and 18, for example, 2019. When I was starting, they were 10. They were not protesting, right? And it's it's this, I go back to videos that were like, say, five years ago, because I like to go through these, um, uh, how do you say this? It's like, I forgot what's the term for it, but it's like mental exercises, if you want, telling myself, well, five years has passed, six years has passed since 2015, how many of those people who were too young back then are now old enough? And how many of the people who in 2019 were 20, now are 22? In five years, there will be 27. You know, it's those things that make a lot of difference. That's what I mean in the beginning, like the lack of data. And I'm, I'm using data in, in kind of a purest sense. Just a lack of specific information at a specific time. You can do a lot of very interesting things with with data let's sorry if that's a bit you can do a lot of interesting things with those details essentially and that's one of one of the ways that i try and look at it but it's it's one thing to look at this and to just romanticize like i i see myself as a participant in the 2019 uprising not just as quote unquote a lebanese but as someone who was opposing something that's really unfair which is the sectarian system corruption etc and for me that should have been enough so Palestinians and Syrians and Ethiopians and so on who are in Lebanon, who may have had their own specific grievances, for example, with that same regime, should have been part of our uprising. You had some Palestinians and you had some Syrians, but for the most part, they, they, didn't, they couldn't be too visible about their Palestinianness or their Syrianness. You know, you had the Palestinian flags here and there, but not that many. And you had, very, it was... On, or you didn't see any Syrian revolution flag with the exception of very small things that people would take a photo of and upload online because it would be too dangerous to do it publicly. But you would ask yourself, I would ask myself, if we're fighting against a, um, a regime that's saying we're brutal, who knows about this better than Syrians? And in many, we're Lebanese, uh, you know, we, we, we dealt with that same regime not that long ago. And it's those things that, for me, again, translate, I just look at a chant, Yalla Ikhal Yabashar to Yalla Ikhal Mishalaun, right? And that chant, okay, in and of itself is the same chant and you just change the name. But then all of those questions that come out of it, like, oh, well, we changed Mishalaun, we, we changed it to Mishalaun, but do we still remember that it was about Bashar first? Do we still remember that Mishalaun is an ally of Bashar Assad? Do we remember that Bashar is still in power? You know, and so on and so forth. All of that from just a bunch of songs.
Mm. And this is something that I feel is a is a creative and interesting way of looking at something that otherwise would just be too overwhelming uh, to the to the point where it's so overwhelming that I actually don't do something about it. And that's mm. my way of kind of coping with it. I mean, I think this is a very good place to end it on uh, the kind of potential for uh intersectional and international collaboration that creative mm -hmm. efforts like chance can give us and perhaps that's something to be hopeful about the future i think so uh the future is going to be difficult objectively speaking for many reasons that we know from climate change being the most obvious one but there are ways of not just resisting because resistance can honestly be really exhausting but of actually doing something about it and living in a way that isn't just like, okay, it's only good for me, which is fine, but it also makes sense to a wider audience. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I'm trying to explore. I may completely fail. I may not reach anywhere. I have no idea, but it's something that I'm trying to explore because honestly, Efe, I went through all of the ups and downs that I can think of and the paralysis and the depression and the PTSD, all of those things that I'm sure you're familiar with. And this is one way that I feel I can do something about it. Not very frequently. It's one article here and there. It's one podcast episode here and there. But I feel like the more I do these things, maybe I kind of build a muscle, let's put it that way. I will be able to do more and more of it. And there I feel a bit more I hate the word productive because of how it's associated, but it's more of a participant in something that I I think I should be a participant in. Let's let's be very, very abstract about it. It was a pleasure to talk to you once again, Julie. You too, you too. Thanks for having me again. Take care.